Well, several years ago, I was in New York for a board meeting that I'm involved with and had an evening off and went to Greenwich Village to the Barrow Street Theater there. I'll often try to catch plays and the fan of the arts, as many of you know. And this particular play was one that caught my eye. I've seen it a number of times because of what it does to me and what it does to the other people in whatever audience I might be in, whether it's a junior college putting it on or high school or something off Broadway. The name of the play is Our Town. Written by the playwright Thornton Wilder in 1938. He won a Pulitzer Prize for it. It's about life in Grover's Corners, New Hampshire at the turn of the century, but that's last century. There's a stage manager that introduces it in this way, says this is the way we were in our growing up and in our marrying and our living and in our dying. It's about the extraordinary nature of ordinary life. That's what the play's about. And it's, it's powerful for a number of reasons, but there was one moment near the end of the play that I always key in on. It's the reason that I, I see it over and over. I'll tell you about that in a minute, but first let me describe the theater to you. Small theater, just a little less than 200 people. You've got the stage and here, and then the theater is kind of in the three quarters round. You've got on either side and the back. I got a great seat in the center and I got there about 10 minutes before and I'm stumbling through my playbill and uh, it was filling up fast, but there was one seat right next to me that was still empty. There was a woman next to that seat that was not pleased that the seat between us was empty. I started figuring out. She was with her friends on the other side of her, so they had come as a threesome, and it should have been a foursome, and she didn't know where her husband was. And the icicles are growing on her, and she's commenting to them about him. And finally, about three minutes before curtain time, uh, the, the entrance is to the theater on either side, so everybody can see everyone coming into the, the small theater. In comes this whirlwind of a guy. He comes in uh, bustling, huffing, puffing, not at all happy that he's there, and she's not happy that he's late. So it calls for a wonderful reunion between the two of them right before the play started. It was fairly clear from what she had said and then what he was saying, he was a Wall Street, Street guy. And I could tell him by his suit, he had a suit that cost more than some cars cost when I was in high school that I bought. And he had been making a lot of money that day. He was making that clear. He was making it clear that he didn't like having to come to a play because he had to quit doing a deal and hope you're happy kind of stuff. And man, it was, I thought, man, the show's already started and I, they haven't even, <laughs> the curtain's not even up yet. The play is and I was very curious as to how he was going to react to the play, especially the moment that I've been referring, that I referred to a moment ago. The play's in three acts. Act one, we're introduced to a lot of the people in this small New England town. Different people that have different roles and different relationships going on, but principal among those are the Gibbs, is the Gibbs family and the Webb family. And we get to know them a little bit. Act two, of this three-act play occurs three years later than Act One, and it centers around the romance budding of George Gibbs and Emily Webb. They get married at the end of Act Two. Act Three opens nine years later, and Wilder was very specific about how he wanted the stage to be set for Act Three. He wanted the stage bare except for just some plain old chairs lined up, 
some empty, some occupied, you discover fairly quickly that it's a cemetery. And each chair represents a grave. And some of the people sitting in some of the chairs are men and women that we've met in Act 1 and 2 who've since died. But the act centers around the newest member of the graveyard, the newest member of that cemetery, a young woman named Emily. She had gotten married at the end of Act Two, just nine years before, but she has just recently died in childbirth in her early 30s, way too soon. In fact, her funeral procession is happening down the hill in town. This is a cemetery up in the hill above town. The members of the cemetery are talking in a detached way to one another. They're talking with themselves and with a character who's part of the audience but also part of the cast called the stage manager. They're talking about this thing called death. Emily doesn't like, obviously, being there. She wants to be living. She doesn't want to be in a cemetery. She uh, is ex expressing her exasperation and in the course of that discovers that she can go back and relive some of her life if she wants. And that's, she's thinking, that's what I'm longing for. Well, of course I want to do that. They said, we wouldn't advise it. She asked these other members of the, the graveyard, well, why wouldn't you advise? We just trust us on this. Don't do it. She picks up enough warning to say, all right, well, I better pick the day carefully, but I'm still going to do it. The stage manager says, okay, go ahead. And she picks her 12th birthday. It's one of the happiest days in her life. She thought that'll be safe. So she gets up, leaves the cemetery, and the curtain spreads uh, parts behind the cemetery to an absolutely beautiful scene of a New England farm kitchen on a beautiful sunlit spring morning. Warmly lit, fire in the fireplace, the mother's humming, singing, so happy, cooking her daughter's favorite birthday breakfast, which includes bacon frying that you smell as a member of the audience. The dad is whistling, he's happy because he's gotten his daughter the gift that she didn't think he was gonna get her. The little brother's even nice to his big sister. Everything's perfect, but Emily becomes increasingly agitated as she's experiencing this because she starts becoming aware of something. She starts becoming aware of what she had missed on this supposedly wonderful day. In fact, the volume of things that she missed, the, the, the sheer quantity of things that she had not savored, had not experienced, began to pile up to the point she had to cut it short. And she comes back to the cemetery and plops back down in her grave, talking about how in the dark human beings are, that she never realized how in the dark it, she was, how she missed so much about life. And she works herself up into an exasperated frenzy to the point that she asks a climactic question, which is the moment that I've referenced a couple of times already. It's why I go to this play. It provides a reset button for me and my journey, but I also want to pay attention to the people around me. In an exasperated tone, she almost screams at the stage manager. It's a question, but it's as much of a statement as a question. And she looks at him and says, do human beings 
ever realize life while they're living it? Every minute? Stage manager says no. Then he modifies his answer. Saints and poets sometimes. Do human beings ever realize life while they're living it? The theater, it's always the case, the theater is always as quiet as it is right now here. It's a powerful question. You're asking yourself. I'm asking myself. So I did a gut check. How am I doing realizing life while I'm living it? But I'm also wanting to see how the rest of the audience is responding. And in particular, I want to know how Mr. Hurricane Wall Street is reacting. But I can't turn and look at him, that's rude. It's too palpable of a moment. So I'm, I work on my peripheral vision, put my head back, open my eyes as large as I can, and I'm just trying to look out the side of my head. And he was crying. Oh, not just, he was crying. Wrecked by that question. Somebody who supposedly has it all, makes more money in a year than many of us will our entire lifetime. But he was exposed in that moment at how hollow his humanity was. Do human beings ever realize life while they're living it? Does the gospel have anything to do with that question? I'll tell you this, the reason that I'm up here right now is because I believe from my core that it does that the gospel has everything to do with that question. Are we realizing our lives while we live it? That the gospel is all about enabling us to realize our lives while we're living it. Why am I so confident in the gospel's ability to, to address that? It's what we celebrated a week ago. The literal, physical, historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That validated that he didn't just die as a religious martyr, but validated that he died in what we'll be commemorating here and celebrating in just a bit. His death on the cross actually accomplished something and his resurrection also accomplished something. Validating that who he was was who he claimed to be, what he did was what he claimed it would do, but also inaugurating a new era in creation. and summoning human beings to be able to walk with him through their life journey. Remember what we looked at last week in Luke chapter 24. We walked along with a couple of Christ followers. It was on Sunday afternoon. 
You guys remember this, the road to Emmaus? Hmm? You guys here last week? Okay. It's a great story on Sunday afternoon. They don't yet know. They've heard that the tomb is empty, but they're not, what? They hadn't expected Jesus to, to die. And they certainly weren't expecting him to be raised again. They're walking along this road to Emmaus and a third guy comes along, says, what's happening? They say, haven't you, are you the only one in Jerusalem doesn't know? He ceases to listen to them lament what has happened. And then he begins to explain to them the scriptures and opens up the scriptures to them. And you and I both know that it's Jesus, but they don't know that. They invite him to have dinner with them. When they're, he's breaking bread that evening, their eyes are open, they see it. And now, and then reflecting on that moment and Luke chapter 24, verse 32, they looked at one another and they said, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened the scriptures to us? My heart's not my emotion. My heart is the engine. It's the centerpiece. It's the centrifugal force of my humanity. My heart is my mind, my emotions, and my will. When my heart's engaged, my mind's engaged. I'm thinking deeply. When my heart's engaged, my, I'm, I'm feeling authentically. I'm in touch, yes, with the way God's wired me emotionally. When my my heart's engaged, I'm acting intentionally, and I am realizing life while I'm living it. That's what it means for my heart to burn within me. It's not heartburn that I take a Rolades for, it is me becoming restored according to the cadence of my and direction of my humanity. So what's it look like? Walking on the road, that road that you and I acknowledge were on that journey, navigating tax returns and job interviews and final exams or midterms or news from a doctor. How do we walk with the risen Christ? What, what's it look like? If you've got your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter one. Paul writes about who this risen Christ is. And he's also writing about who he was before the resurrection. In fact, what he describes here gives an understanding of how he raised himself from the dead. Now, a friend of mine, part of our Northern community, Pat Morley, uh, head of Man on the Mirror, he, he uh, Man in the Mirror, he, he said years ago, I'll never forget, he said, you know, there's a Jesus who is and a Jesus we want and they're not the same. You know, the Jesus we want is uh, a little religious mascot, but the Jesus who is, whew, He's not tame, he's king of kings and lord of lords, but his kingship, his lordship is exercised on our behalf. Verse 15, Colossians 1, take a look. The son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Remember that word firstborn, promise? Yes? Firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Notice that word again, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, important word, to reconcile to himself all things. So when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't dying to just express, hey, I care about you so much, I'll die. He was accomplishing something on the cross, something cosmic. 
a reconciliation, to reconcile, to redeem, to restore, to reclaim what once was. He came to repair the cosmos, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And once you, he personalizes, were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you. He's reconciled, he's restored, he's redeemed, he's repaired. You, if you've trusted him by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now, we spend a long time in that text. It is rich. But I want to look at three aspects of Christ's identity, who he is, as he invites me to walk with him as the risen Christ. And the result of that is me realizing life while I'm living it. Let's look at all three, one at a time. Go back, we'll go back through verse 16, and then verse 17, and then verse 18. Verse 16. Here's the first arena in which I relate with him. It has to do with him being creator. When I'm restored in a right relationship with Christ, I, I began walking with him along the road of my journey as creator, submitting to him as creator. The outcome of that is a purpose that I otherwise would not have. Purpose comes from being created. Now, if we're not created, if we're what our naturalistic, materialistic culture says, that we're just lucky, lucky blobs of protoplasm that over gazillions of years finally found the right combination, then we are, as Neil Postman would say, our, our birth is accidental, and then our death is certainly accidental, and then stop wasting your trying to come up with a meaningful life in between an accidental birth and an accidental death, because, and then an, an accidental life really isn't worth living. It's why Camus despaired the existential French philosopher and said, you know, either do away with life uh, or just make up a purpose, make, authenticate your existence is how he expressed it. But that's not going to enable us to realize life while we're living it. The beauty of the gospel is I'm reminded every morning as I walk with the risen Christ that I'm created. Go back to the text, verse 16, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, or the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So if he made me, therefore my alarm rings every day of my life leading up to this moment at the end of my physical life on this planet, Every day, my alarm rings and I have purpose. You're uniquely created. You're uniquely created. You are, you are, every one of us is. And we all have our individual purposes, but we, it all comes under the umbrella of a grand, large purpose. And that purpose, ultimately the scriptures say from cover to cover is for the glory of God. Habakkuk chapter two, verse 14. One of my favorite verses in all of scripture talks about this narrative, this purpose of all creation and how it focuses in on what the reconciliation of all things is, is leading us to. He's repairing so that once again, the, the glory of the Lord for the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, will, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I love that. How, how completely does the waters cover the sea? 
totally. What this is alluding to is what will be one day, but it also is implying what once was. That before the fall in the garden, everything glorified him as the waters covered the sea. There was nothing that existed on this planet that didn't glorify him. Uh, so when God creates, he creates everything to, to, re, to glorify him, meaning to reflect his beauty, his majesty, his power, his sufficiency. It's not an ego thing. God doesn't have an ego. He simply creates for his glory. Nothing in the garden failed to glorify him until the rebellion came, until human beings, Adam and Eve said, God, we can be normal human beings without you. With that sin came uh, um, a, a break from the glory. The tragedy of our sin is we fall away from the dance of that glory. Romans chapter three, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The epitome of my, the glory of God is not just a standard. My sin takes me out of the dance of that ultimate purpose for which I'm made as a human being. And as I'm walking with the risen Christ, I'm restored into that purpose. So Acts, uh, Habakkuk chapter 2.14 is saying one day, one day, Christ came, first advent came, died on the cross, rose again, validated what he did. And then in his resurrection, he inaugurated a new age. And there's a culmination of the, recla the that, 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 that reclamation of all creation will be culminated one day when he returns again. And the glory of the Lord will once again cover the earth as waters cover the sea. But in the meantime, when my alarm rings, do you know what I have? the opportunity to do and you in the way that I do my taxes, the way that I do my parties, the way that I do my hobbies, my work, my relationship, all of life, I have the opportunity to be a part of this rising tide of the glory of God that will culminate one day in the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the water covers the sea. That's purpose. That's realizing life while I'm living it. I've got purpose because I'm created in every aspect of who I am. It's not just my religious life he's interested in. He owns me completely. Because he's made me, he owns me. But that's not in a subjugation. It's in a liberation sense. Uh, let's just say I, I, I go to lunch this week on Monday and leave the office, somebody comes meet me at the office and I'm driving them over to my favorite restaurant. We're going through a back way through a residential area. We, 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 we pass a house, very unique, beautiful looking house. And I glance over it. My friend who's an architect sees me glance over and says, how do you like that house? I said, I like that house. He said, that's, that's my house. I said, really? I didn't know you, you, I, I didn't know you lived here. He says, oh, I don't, I don't. I designed that house. I said, that's a cool house. Going to our, our lunch the next day, I'm taking another friend out to lunch who's a general contractor, actually. I'm going to take him to the same restaurant. I'm, I'm a pretty boring culinary guy, so I go to the same restaurant. We're going the same route back the, the, the back streets and the same neighborhood. We, cross, we pass the same house, come across it, and I comment on the house from the previous day. He says, oh, that's my house. I said, you live up north. He says, yeah, but I, I built that house. I said, great job. That's, that's beautiful. The next day I'm taking a, a friend who's uh, sold his company and uh, he, we're, I'm taking the same restaurant, going through the same neighborhood. We passed the same house and he says, how do you like my house? 
I said, you don't live there either, you don't live there either do you? He said, uh, uh, no, but I bought the house just, just a couple of weeks ago for my kids and grandkids. I said, good choice, it's beautiful. The next day, I'm tired of taking people to lunch, I want to go alone. <laughs> so let's say I'm driving along, but I go to the same restaurant. Remember, I'm not creative culinary-wise, I'm going to the same restaurant, going through the same, taking the same route through the same neighborhood. I come to that same house, and a soccer ball comes out in front of me, and bouncing, and I stop, and a little boy comes out, picks it up, notices my windows open, comes around to the side of the car and says, hey, mister. I said, how you doing? He says, I'm really good, do you like my house? I said, do you live in that house? He says, yeah, we just moved in. Now I've got four people who've told me that that house is their house. Who's telling the truth? Every one of them. And God looks at you and says, you're mine. You're mine. I designed you. I created you. I bought you back with my son's precious blood. And I have inhabited you. I'm living in you. And you are now liberated to live, created, completely mine, according to my purpose, and that is to be for my glory and to live in a way in which you're realizing your life while you're living it. And that means not just your church life, but in every arena of your journey, live as a created man or woman. Live with purpose as Abraham Kuyper, the, the a great Dutch thinker and prime minister and, and co or college president and, and uh, national newspaper editor uh, and pastor. He wrote, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine. And you t show me a human being that has tasted the good news of the gospel, not to become some religious person, but to become a reconciled, redeemed, restored human being. I'll show you someone who's living all of life underneath the umbrella of Jesus as creator and owner. Absolutely. And you talk about, you talk about purpose that's significant, that's cosmic. Here's the second arena in which I relate with him. What's it like to walk with the risen Christ along the road of my journey? I'm not just relating with him as creator. I'm also understanding relating with him as sustainer. I'm restored to, re to rely on him as sustainer. Now, when I'm submitting to him as creator, an outcome of that is a deep substantive purpose. When I'm re relying on him as my sustainer, the outcome of that is tasting his enoughness on a daily basis. Somebody asked me last week, said, you haven't used the word enoughness in a while. When are you going to bring it back up? I said, all right, we'll bring it back up. And if you're new here, you're wondering, what word is that? It's a word we made up. So uh, it's his sufficiency. It's the fact that whatever your need is right now, relationally, strength-wise, emotionally, Whatever needs we have in order to fulfill that purpose, he's got it. Because he's sustaining us. He's strengthening us. Go back to the text, verse 17, the next verse. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things. 
all things in me, all things in us, all things in creation. I just, early this morning, um, watched a, a video on YouTube. The name of it was, How Big is the Universe Compared with a Grain of Sand? It's by Dr. Pete Edwards from the University of Durham where he is asking the question how big the universe is and saying, you can't get, our human minds aren't going to get around this. And he says, but if you want to start, understand it, take your thumb, put it at arm's length, balance a grain of sand on your thumb and then point it to the sky. And the amount of area that's blocked out by that grain of sand is the width of the lens of, of the Hubble telescope. That's the field of vision in the Hubble telescope that goes out into space. So when the Hubble telescope focuses on that much of the sky, it's focused on 10,000 galaxies. 10,000. He goes on to start describing how big. He says, the visible universe contains around 100 billion galaxies. And each of those galaxies, some have upwards of 100 billion stars, many of which are much larger than our sun. In him all things hold together. So let's keep that analogy going. He says that there's many galaxies as there are grains of sand on the earth. It's just astounding. So let's just pile Florida a few miles deep with these, maybe the size of this sanctuary here, uh, this big clumps of BBs glued together. We'll call each of them a galaxy. I guess they'll probably need to be larger than that, but let's just take a few hundred thousand years to ferret through these mile deep and covering all the state of Florida. And finally, we come across one of those, these big building sized clumps call, and it's called the Milky Way. When we start ferreting through that, it takes us a long time. We finally get to a little basketball sized clump called our solar system. We take one little BB out of that and there's Earth. And on Earth, we go through there and there's a little, little area called North America. Look at that. And then on there, North America, there's a little place called Florida. And Florida's a little place called Orlando. And uh, ooh, there's a place called Disney down there. But then there's this little place called Dog Track Road and then a little building called Northland. And there's a little seat there at Northland where somebody is saying, is God capable, is Jesus capable of sustaining me? Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, to whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. All these galaxies, who created these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say Israel? Why do you say Northland? Why do you say person who's part of Northland? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary as we're going through our lives and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. They will get to the end of their lives and be able to say, did I perfectly realize life while I was living it? Of course not. Fallen body, fallen world kept me from that. But I grew and grew in my ability to realize my life while I'm living it because I'm walking with the risen Christ who's creator, but also with that purpose he gives me, he sustains me with the strength that I need on a daily basis to fulfill that calling. And that's the beauty of walking with Jesus as a risen Christ, but it doesn't stop there. It's a third arena. And it's relating with him, not just as creator and sustainer, but relating with him as life giver. Huh. I'm submitting to him as creator that gives me purpose. I'm relying on him as sustainer that gives me his enoughness, gives strength. But I'm walking with him as my life giver, which brings a fulfillment that's not possible outside the gospel. When I say life giver, I'm not just referring to heart beating, lung breathing. That's the life he gives. Yes, he's the author of that life. But it's also the life of the gospel, the life with a capital L as I refer to it. Now, I asked you guys to notice a word a minute ago as we were reading the text and you said it out loud. What was the word? Actually, you're right. I said several words to pay attention to. But the one I'm thinking of is firstborn. Verse 18. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Firstborn from among the dead. Scripture tells us that we're walking dead. We're dead men and women walking in our trespasses and in our sins, Ephesians chapter 2. We still laugh and we still cry, we still create, we still relate, but we're muted. And over the course of life, that failure to realize life where we're living it weighs on us. And as Robert Abraham wrote, a poet published in the Saturday Evening Post in 1943 during World War II, and he called the poem, The, the Night Shanghai Fell, Burned. He says this, some men die by shrapnel. Some men perish in flames. But most men die inch by inch at play at little games. Like not just my Wall Street buddy, but like me, without the gospel. And into that inertia comes the life giver, the firstborn of all creation. I need to be born again 
When Jesus was raised from the dead, it wasn't just validating that what he did on the cross accomplished what he said it was going to accomplish. When he was raised from the dead, he was entering, inaugurating a new aspect of creation, a redeemed, a restored creation. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. So in the midst of men and women that are stumbling around existing instead of living, surviving instead of thriving, spectating instead of participating in this journey called a human life, Jesus comes as creator and sustainer, but also as life giver. And his resurrection from the dead was him being the firstborn of this new humanity. He's the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're among those brothers and sisters. And that's why we are called in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, but you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the what? Firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. So you and I are following in his footsteps, walking. He has regenerated us and brought us to life. And church, Greek word, ekklesia, root of that, you hear me say it over and over, root word of that is kaleo, kalein, to call. The church is the called out ones. What are we called out of? Out of death into life, out of surviving into thriving, out of spectating to participating. We are not here as an institutional gathering of religious people. We are here as an assembly of the firstborn. We are in the inaugural wave of the redemption of the cosmos in which God is summoning this dead creation back to life, hinging on the cross in which he paid the penalty for our rebellion, dying, rising again from the dead, validating that that was true, but also inaugurating a new age. And we're involved with that on a daily basis. But guys, do not take too lightly what God has in store for churches like Northland and thousands of others. Do not undersell the call on us. This is not just to come stare at the back of somebody's head for an hour and a half on a Sunday. It's for us to learn to walk together as a community of men and women who've come to life. Men and women who actually believe Jesus when he says in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. But guess what? I've come that you might have life even though you're dead and have it to the full. That's why John introduced Jesus and in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. It's why John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, he says, if, if somebody has the son, he has life. Go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 12. If anyone has the son, he has life. And anyone who does not have the son of God does not have life. He came to make us alive. He came to enable us to live. He cares about what you and I are reflecting on the day before we die and to realize, understand that we really were realizing life while we lived it. Jesus didn't come to start a new, new religion and Northland's future is not being an excellent religious community. Northland's future is being a community of new humanity, figuring out what it looks like to be fully alive to the glory of God. And before we leave here, 
we're going to leave with a taste on our palate of the price Jesus paid to make that happen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your love. And I thank you for the privilege that you give us as your people to realize life while we're living it to the glory of God. Thank you for paying the ultimate price, for taking upon yourself our death sentence, physical death, spiritual death. And I ask that you would enable us to engage right now as new creations, as men and women who've been made alive. Enable us to taste your life together. I ask this in the name of the one who is the resurrection and the life. Amen. So the night before Jesus gave his life, he instituted something. And those of you who are serving us, you can be excused now to celebrate this with us. We're going to take some moments to linger here. We're going over a bit. You guys got both barrels. And uh, so we're supposedly out of time. But trust me, those of you who have your kids in childcare, they will not give the, your kids away. Uh, you just need to be sure and thank them for caring for your children. We're going to do one song together. Let's commune with him together and commune with one another together. What we are communing in is the reality of what Jesus did to pay the price for our life. The juxtaposition of this table and that cemetery is appropriate because he came and conquered death. But the disciples didn't know yet. It was just a Passover meal on a Thursday night. And Jesus took some bread and he broke it and he took some wine and he poured it and he said, this, this is my body broken for you and this is my blood shed for you. And Paul says, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we're proclaiming his death until he comes. He didn't, he wasn't establishing a religious ritual that's hollow. He was establishing a reminder of his agenda for the cosmos and how you and I are part of that. So if you're a follower of Jesus, come and take. Here at Northland, we practice what's been called intinction for centuries. It's, it's taking the piece of bread and dipping it in the wine. You'll see red juice in front of you. That's wine or white liquid, and that's juice. Uh, parents, if you're not able, by the way, to, to come up and uh, be served, and raise your hand. Somebody will serve you. Parents, make sure you talk with your kids before they take this. We're, we're to be followers of Jesus when we take this meal because that's what makes it meaningful. And here, someone, you might not know who they are, but they are administering this. Hear them. This is a fellow brother, sister in Christ, part of the church of the firstborn with you. They've been made alive, and they're going to tell you this is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Christ. There'll be some time for silence during this song. 
Don't daydream. Reflect on what the Holy Spirit has carved out in you through the Word. Go back to maybe that text in Colossians 1. And then when we're done with this, I'll give us all the benediction to go live. But in the meantime, let's worship.